Welcome to Food Freedom Radio, where we nourish and plant the seeds of change. I'm Laura Headline, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and a person um, challenging myself to make this um, an evergreen show. Now, an evergreen radio show is something with you do with the idea of being replayed. So, Fourth of July, holiday, six, some other time, I may want to just replay this show. And typically, when um, radio people do evergreen shows, they don't tell you what the date is. You know, like if I'm talking about preserving food. <laughs> it doesn't really matter what the date is. But on this topic, the date does matter. So the date is Thursday, February 27th. And that's the day we're taping this. The first airing will be on Saturday and Sunday this weekend. But the stock market had done something on Thursday, which had only happened 15 times since the Great Depression. And it's pushed down 3% uh, for on consecutive dates. And a, co- a case of COVID-19 has been found in California with no known link to China or other issues, Japan is closing schools and major areas across the country are in quarantine. So how can we talk about this issue in a way that might be relevant in the summer next year? And we don't know what's going to happen next. How do we uh, how do we talk about that? And um, I'm very pleased to have in studio probably the guest that can best do that. Um, his name is Rob Wallace. We've had him on like three years ago. He is the author of a book called Big Farms Make Big Flu. He also has written two other technical books. He works as a researcher with the Agroecology and Rural Economics Research Corps. He's a visiting scholar at the Institute for Global Studies at the University of Minnesota, and he's been studying diseases for 25 years. Welcome to Food Freedom Radio. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. So um, studying diseases for 25 years, what do you think about this moment in time? Well, it's uh, it's at one of the same time a disturbing moment and also not unexpected. Uh, since 2000, we've had a, a whole series of what we might call celebrity pathogens that have emerged and uh, disturbed us uh, almost on the annual at this point. Uh, so you had influenza AH5N1, the, the bird flu that we knew, and then uh, uh, subsequently we had the, the swine flu 2009. We had uh, uh, we've had Ebola go from being a marginalized pathogen to, to a regional pathogen that uh, infected 35,000 people. We've had Zika. Um, so there's been a whole series of them. Uh, we, we were worried this year. Uh, at least in 2019, about African swine fever that's uh, emerged uh, out of Africa, spread across Europe and into China and killed half their their hog there. Um, and then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, and I had missed the SARS in 2003. There's so many of them. <laughs> I, I can't keep track of all of them. Uh, and, um, well, we had a, a, a new coronavirus uh, that is related to SARS uh, that, as you said, is now uh, known as COVID-19. Uh, and it uh, emerged out of a... Um, um, a wet market in Wuhan um, in China. And uh, I think the shock of it is how fast it moved from being this one market to getting onto the global stage in a month's time. Uh, the shock of it is uh, that uh, it didn't, it's not operating uh, like the other uh, coronaviruses. Uh, SARS, if someone, someone gets in an infection uh, or it displays symptoms, uh, you can isolate them and they can uh, – uh, if we isolate them, then they they can't spread it to uh, other people. Uh, but they're not infectious before they display symptoms. Uh, but this one is not like that. There are cases in which uh, uh, with COVID-19, people can be uh, not only uh, infect other people before they get symptoms, but they can infect people even as they're asymptomatic. So we don't have a vaccine for it. We don't really have antivirals for it directly. We could probably use some of the... Uh, uh, HIV and uh, protease inhibitors to help slow it down. But for the most part, um, uh, 
uh, and we don't have herd immunity to it. So uh, this is really the dangers so of it. Let's talk more about that herd immunity because sometimes people are saying, well, look at the thousands of people who died of the flu. Why is this right. a big deal? Why is everyone going all freak out about it? Right. So why is everyone freaking out about this? Uh, yeah, and, and uh, unfortunately, the influenza thing is kind of uh, used as something of a rhetorical device in my viewpoint. And I understand why, because you want to push back against the kind of uh, media freakout over this, because at that uh, time, let's say even a month ago, it was just isolated in, uh, in China and why worried about it. Uh, and it's because seasonal influenza does kill uh, – uh, can infect as many as 45 million Americans and kill uh, – uh, as high as 60,000 a year, and that's, that seems a lot. And, in, and globally, it's 600,000 might die from a, a seasonal influenza, and that's a big deal. But, um, I mean, when you're dealing with a, a new pathogen, um, unlike influenza, seasonal influenza, we, do, we have vaccines. They don't always work that great year to year, but they do work. And we also have uh, what's called herd immunity, meaning many of us have been infected by, if not this strain, uh, of seasonal influenza circulating, something similar to it, so we generate antibodies so that when we are infected, we can uh, basically block the pathogen uh, from uh, circulating or, or getting anybody sick. Um, so that's why we, we want to vaccine, take vaccines and so that people who are more susceptible, let's say the elderly or, or the very young, can be protected. Uh, but we don't have a vaccine for our COVID-19. We don't have any herd immunity, although that will be changing as more people are infected. But at this moment... Uh, we are, in essence, uh, very much exposed. Now, most of the people who will be infected by this coronavirus are probably just not going to get sick that much. Uh, but unfortunately, uh, you know, we do – we're clocking in at a uh, – in Wuhan, the uh, uh, case fatality rate was about 2%. Uh, I think outside Wuhan, is, it's dropping down under 1%. But the problem is, uh, you, know, you know, for – suppose it's – you know, clocks in at 2%. Uh, if it continues to spread around the world, you assume it has a high penetrance, meaning it infects much of the world, say half the world, 4 billion people. 4 billion people, 2% die, that's 80 million people dead. So that's like numbers that go beyond the scale of what uh, seasonal influenza is about. And I was shocked that the 1918 swine flu killed more Americans than World War I and World War II combined. Yes, that's one of the secrets, uh, the terrible secrets about um, American memory of outbreaks is that we tend to forget things really fast. So 1918 was a terrible thing. Uh, the first uh, wave that came in the spring of 1918 wasn't really that bad. So this is the other thing about being careful about Assuming that because where the path COVID-19 is now means that's where it's going to get end up. Uh, this is a pathogen. It's an RNA virus. It evolves quickly, evolves a lot. We have no idea what the, the future is. Unlike seasonal influenza, we have a pretty good idea about what the, the boundary conditions are for it. We don't know what COVID-19 is going to exactly do. I'm not, you know, preaching, you know, the house is on fire or anything mm -hmm. like that. You know, we should stay calm, cool, um, collected. But I think there's some things we can learn from that. And uh, well, we're talking about other things. But like, uh, I guess in um, in Philadelphia, um, things really fell apart really badly. Um, but the women of the community oh, yes, rallied. Yes. And, yes. and they were able to sort of uh, sort of do this grassroots networking thing and fed people and treated right. people. And right. so there was some. There are some stories, and yeah, we don't know. As I say, I want this to be an evergreen story. It, uh, you know, worrying about the world f on fire, and, and yes. in a lot of ways, though, 
Greta Thunberg said, the world is on fire. Yes, yes. You know, it really is. Yes. And and now I want to connect this to a, a quote in, in your book um, that you wrote in 2016. You were, we were a guest then. Uh, you're yes. the author again of Big Farms Make Big Flu. And in that book in 2016, you argued that society should be a lot more concerned about disease that could uh, decimate the human population. But systematic failure is how capitalism has transformed our relationships to the natural world. So, you know, we look at trees, we see lumber, pigs mm. become pork. Right. And you and I, I mean, we're not like Martin Buber, how he described all and thou, I and thou. I mean, it's, these are the, this is, this is the biggest story that we want to tell, right? Uh, um, excuse me. Yeah. Um, you know, one of the things is that, um, you know, a lot of a lot of these celebrity pathogens that have emerged, and I'm, I don't mean to be flippant about it. I mean they're really serious and, and dangerous and worrisome. Um, but all of them, you know, whether it's this uh, COVID nineteen, whether it's Ebola, whether it's the H five N one, the H one N one two thousand nine, whether it's the H five N two that circulated uh, here in the Upper Midwest in twenty fifteen, uh, they're all very different. Some of them are RNA viruses, some of them are DNA viruses, but their commonality is that what were previously marginalized pathogens are suddenly. Uh, surging ahead and becoming these regional threats, uh, these proto-pandemic threats that might uh, emerge and become serious pandemics. And uh, it's my team's uh, hypothesis, and we've done some digging for Ebola, for Zika, for uh, the influenzas, that um, some of the worst pathogens uh, are emerging in part because of our changing relationship with uh, the ecology. And uh, we're now at a point of uh, using... uh, Seeing agriculture as um, divorced from the, the ecological matrix out of which we grow food, and that's a that's a serious serious mistake. Um, we are engaging in uh, widening what's called the metabolic rift. That is the uh, a a expanse or, or a, a disjunction that we've introduced between our economy and our ecology, in such a way that uh, agriculture, which is in, in essence, a natural economy in the sense of that uh, no matter how many uh, uh, livestock you move or, or, or crops you grow ultimately depends on the soil and the sun and the seasons and, and the life cycle of the animals and plants that you're growing. And we moved it to try to make it as much of an industrial process as, as we can. And uh, so we've removed all the very things that would previously help control outbreaks. So, um, you know, if you think about forests, they're very complex things. And um, it's very hard for a deadly pathogen to line up a whole bunch of hosts, um, whether it's for Ebola and bats or any. Uh, but when we when we deforest and we turn those forests into, uh, in the case of uh, West Africa, into palm oil plantations, we uh, not only we. I mean, we may destroy a lot of hosts, meaning wild animals, and then destroy the pathogens that they carry. But uh, many of those hosts actually do quite well under those circumstances. So bats, uh, they're not just going to roll over and die. They move over to the the palm oil plantations where they don't have any predators. They've got nice uh, spaces between the the crops and their, 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 between their roosting sites and their foraging sites. Um, so what that does is that increases the interface between these uh, uh, reservoirs and the um, uh, So the, we're going to take a break, and we're talking with the author of Big Farms Make Big Flus, Rob Wallace. We're going to talk about how to move to regenerative agriculture and the potential for everyone to be healthier and well and, um, and vibrant. Um, so you're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. 
Don't make it bad. Take a sad song and make it better. Remember to let her into your heart. Then you can start to make it better. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio, where we plant to nurse the seeds of change. I'm Laura Hedlund, a student of permaculture, a person who knows cheap food is not cheap, and a striving, a person striving to make when radio this is called an evergreen show, a show that could be aired in a year from now, but talking about something that's all in our mind, uh, COVID-19. And in studio with us is someone who has studied diseases for over 25 years. He's the author of Big Farms Make Big Flu. He's a visiting scholar for the Institute of Global Studies at the University of Minnesota. He also works with the Agroecology and Rural Economics Research Corps. And Rob Wallace, you also have two technical books. So explain that how um, Ebola could have been connected to industrial agriculture. Right, right. I, I got you know I get so involved in all the details that you know you can get lost a little bit even myself um, because I wanted to connect how you know what happens out in these hinterlands is directly related to what happens out in uh, industrial production. And uh, it's hard to imagine that what happens in the the wild forests of uh, West Africa or in, uh, in Amazonia has anything to do with what's happening uh, in the kind of, uh, the, you know, the large farms uh, out in uh, rural America here. And, um, you know, uh, there's any uh, kind of a geography involved here in such a way that as we export our model of industrial production in deep into the, into the, the hinterlands, into the forests, uh, that we strip away the complexity that allow that typically can control pathogens from spreading, and all of a sudden it becomes much smoother in the sense of uh, pathogen that was had a hard time lining up hosts can all of a sudden have a much uh, greater interface with humans and spill over into humans in such a way that um, it ha- hadn't been able to do previously. So Ebola, which would knock out a village or a guerrilla troop uh, every few years, uh, and it was a terrible thing because it had a case fatality rate over 90%. Now, all of a sudden, in, from 2013 to 2015, infects 35,000 people, killing 11,000, leaving bodies in the streets of regional capitals, and with a you know, potential of actually becoming a, a, a real pandemic, and that's uh, hard to imagine. But um, this is in part coming from the changes in the global economy that is uh, attempting to export a particular agribusiness model around the world and uh, in such a way that uh, selects for strains of pathogens that can be increasingly virulent and succeed at being virulent. Um, typically, a pathogen that's very deadly can't – if you kill your host before you get into the next host, you cut your own line of transmission. But if you pack in all your livestock together that selects for strains that can, uh, uh, can kill their hosts uh, much better and also uh, increases the likelihood, uh, let's say, for some of these more uh, – uh, uh, wild-type uh, pathogens like Ebola and Zika to be able to spread into humans. So, yeah, so we've all heard that the um, uh, COVID-19 has been because of the wild foods. Right. Um, but could there be a connection between industrial pork production and COVID-19? Right. Well, there's there's two things. People are going, oh, well, maybe it just came directly from hog. And, and I tend to, to disagree with that. I don't think it's necessarily the case there. 
there's some circumstantial possibilities it might be, but uh, I, I err on the side that it probably did come from uh, some of the uh, you know, wild foods that were being uh, uh, sold at the, the Wuhan market from which uh, it, it appears that the pathogen emerged. However, um, I connect this to uh, industrial ag in a different way, and that uh, is in, on two levels. One, um, while foods in China, since its economic liberalization, uh, the country's uh, liberalization has uh, has increasingly become much more formalized and uh, become increasingly capitalized. And so what was this kind of uh, thing of uh, bringing some wild animals into a, an, an urban wild wet market has now become much more formalized. And so the money that is behind industrial ag, some of that money is, is also behind this increasing capitalization of wild foods. The second way is that as industrial ag expands out into the hinterlands in China – uh, there's competing for this primary environment, this primary landscape. And so uh, wild food farmers, uh, whether they're growing it on their farms or are, are picking animals out of the, the deep forest, are forced to increasingly uh, uh, move into more of the deeper forest in such a way that their their animals that they're growing are increasingly interfacing with reservoirs, say bats, that might are the source of many of the coronaviruses and other pathogens, and so that increases the interface by which the bats are uh, are acting as reservoirs, and the pathogens are spilling over into these animals that are subsequently uh, shipped across the peri-urban uh, lands uh, loop into uh, into uh, the, the some of the largest uh, cities in the world, and then subsequently are connected to uh, the global travel network. So much is on the table with yes, all this. Yes, it's, yes. it's kind of hard to get a, a hand around it. But um, and, and you and I have also visited about something called um, regenerative agriculture, and you yes. work on something called um, agroecology. Yes. So what does that mean? Well, these these are two different versions of something of the same idea, and that is that uh, agriculture is very much um, not necessarily an industrial <laughs> economy, <laughs> and that, yes, we can recognize the ecological roots of the food that we grow and that we should uh, not only respect it in terms of an ethos and a metaphysics, but uh, respect it at, in a very concrete, uh, practical, pragmatic way. That the uh, the foods we want to grow, we grow should be nutritious. Uh, they should be a means by which uh, we can continue to grow from uh, generation to generation. We want to uh, grow food that doesn't uh, poison our waterways, that doesn't poison the air, uh, doesn't uh, just uh, depopulate the soils so that uh, you know one landscape is destroyed. We just move to another. We want uh, uh, a natural economy that uh, respects the. the uh, the rural community uh, in which that uh, isn 't about just exporting out all the the wealth out of a community that allows the the, the money that 's made uh, from farming to continue to circulate in the local communities um, so it uh, it 's not an extractive industry it 's about uh, allowing us to continue to appropriate from from our ecologies and to survive as human populations. We have a right to survive. We have a right to grow food. Uh, but in addition, we want to be able to do that from generation to generation. So we we need to be able to engage in some kind of regenerative agriculture. So does this mean we get to a pre-capitalist family smallholding where we're living on turnips in the winter? And is that what you're talking about? Well, um, 
you know, there, there are various uh, thoughts. And what's really remarkable is that uh, for, for many decades, uh, agribusiness has basically controlled the narrative of food. Mm-hmm. And uh, all of a sudden, that's uh, that hold is becoming getting out of their hands, and uh, all of a sudden, there are different models of act, thinking about what we can do in terms of growing food and surviving. Not only at the level of the individual gardener, which is wonderful, uh, gardening is wonderful, but at the level of a, of a large population, uh, you know. And I think then with this new, uh, you know, with people around the globe being quarantined. This is also um, a, a way of how do, how do I eat in a way that yeah. is good for um, for the for the for the ecology, right? Right? How do I make these choices? And it doesn't mean that I need Roundup and stuff that's going to destroy the topsoil and make our water polluted and our air polluted and add climate emissions. That's not good. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> that's not working. Right? You know, that's not feeding the world. And there are ways of doing it. And yes. that's what we're going to do when we come back and talk the next segment. You're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950, the progressive voice of Minnesota. And in studio with us is Rob Wallace. He's the author of Big Farms Make Big Flus, plus two other technical books, a visiting scholar, and someone that studies diseases for 25 years. Uh, We'll be right back. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio. Uh, with us in studio is Rob Wellis, author of a couple technical books, um, author of Big Farms Make Big Flu um, with the Agroecology and Rural Economics Research Corps and a visiting scholar at the University of Minnesota, studying diseases for 25 years. So now from studying diseases for 25 years, you've moved to... Yes. Well, I, I, I still study disease, but the thing is most of my time, uh, uh, my work a day is dedicated to looking at how, how to make regenerative ag or agroecology work on the ground. And, uh, um, you know, one goes, well, why, why do that? Uh, in part because I came to a conclusion about uh, seven years ago that uh, this I was looking at this all backwards because, you know, uh, when COVID-19 or any of these pathogens emerge, we, uh, we run around with our hair on fire as Perhaps we should, um, but at that point, the, the the bug has already left the barn, as it were. I mean, all we can do at this point is uh, do our very best to batten down the public health hatches and 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 survive uh, this. If it turns out to be uh, uglier than it than it might be, um, but I am focusing on the other end, the agricultural end, because that if we're interested in stopping these pathogens from emerging in the first place, then we have to get our agriculture right, we have to get our environmental policies right, and we have to do the things necessary that the uh, these deadly pathogens are basically sequestered in their reservoirs in the forest and aren't don't have the chance to be able to spill over. So, what's the vision of agroecology? Well, agroecology, um, you know, is, is and, and regenerative ag are, are very uh, similar to each other in, in that they are they're looking at how to. Uh, grow things in a way to uh, be able to uh, make sure that our food is still connected into the, the local ecologies. And from an epidemiological standpoint, you know, a lot of the what's being done out there already by regenerative ag uh, farmers is already exactly what we need to do to keep pathogens from emerging in the first place. So you've got um, livestock of different breeds. You, uh, they have different uh, immunogenetics, a lot of diversity, uh, like uh, different types of livestock uh, on site. So if any one pathogen comes and, and uh, it, uh, it kills some, ho- some host there, 
it's not necessarily going to be able to spill up and, and run wild through in such a way as it does industrial right. So production. what's standard in industrial pro- project is basically to have the same um, genes. These pigs right. are inbred basically. Right. And, uh, they're, and they're basically bred for uh, morphometric characteristics like fast growth and a certain amount of time. And they're not uh, – you know, and, and regenerative ag folk, uh, they allow their uh, animals to reproduce on site. You they mean, make their own babies. They make their own babies. Now, it sounds like, well, of course they do, right? No, they, they can't do that in industrial practices. Industrial practices, they, they, they don't make their they own don't. babies. And why is this a problem? It's a problem because when, uh, in terms of the pathogens, when a pathogen hits a, a barn of poultry, for instance, and wipes out almost the entirety of the barn, there'll be a few that are still standing. Well, you know, we would think, okay, let's use those to breed the next generation because they might have some quirk of immunogenetics that allows them to protect them from the pathogen that came in, and then we could basically have have uh, protect ourselves of our public health in real time. But industrial production doesn't do that. It's all the breedings at the grandfather level offshore. So, and it's for these other characteristics. They think that vaccines and antibiotics are going to be able to protect themselves from these various pathogens. And oftentimes, vaccines uh, aren't developed in time. So H5N2 here in 2015, they didn't develop a vaccine until the pathogen had already uh, blown through 50 million. So we see this in humans. I mean, uh, some humans can be exposed to COVID-19 and they don't get any effects. Other humans uh, are terribly affected. So it's the same idea of other animals and these pork things if we all but but humans are still making their own babies so right. we have this herd mentality but in the industrial agriculture system it's not doing that so that's one of the reasons why it just becomes a haven for these right viruses. one of the many reasons i mean uh you know if you pack in uh, uh you know a thousand hog in a barn and they're all genetically the same i mean it selects for the most virulent uh, pathogens that just blow right through there and uh you know that's the problem that's in here is an exact most uh you know practical uh, danger of moving from our agriculture from a natural economy to an industrial economy and so uh, if we're interested in making sure these pathogens don't emerge this way, uh, uh, we need to change things on the agriculture end. How do we move back? Can we move back uh, to a natural economy with our food system? Um, oh, yeah, absolutely. And I, and I think uh, this can be done at scale in the sense of, um, you know, it's not a merely a matter of returning back in time. You know, there's a lot of uh, agroecology science being done, cutting-edge stuff. Uh, and I find it to be – that's the cutting-edge science of the 21st century. It's not uh, – genetically modified animals. It's not uh, vaccines. It's not, although, I mean, I'm not opposed to vaccines, but I mean, you know, the the real difficulty is how do we produce uh, food for uh, uh, large populations uh, in such a way? And most of the world's population, most of the food grown in this world uh, is already raised by uh, peasants and smallholders as it is, who are also very much uh, cognizant of the relationship of uh, the food that they grow in the, in the local ecology. So, you know, um, much of the world is already on board with this. They understand this in, in, in deep uh, terms going back uh, centuries and in deep part of their cultures. And uh, it's, uh, you know, only some parts of the world that um, in which uh, industrial ag has captured the the narrative of food that this seems like a, a novel idea. And I want to, because uh, on your website you also mentioned the book or the, the Farming My Black, and I'm just going to huh. read a quote from that because um, she she found school often terrifying. I found solace in the forest when human beings were too much to bear. The earth consistently held firm under my feet, and the solid, sticky trunk of the majestic white pine offered me something stable to grasp. I imagined that I was alone in identifying with Earth as Sacred Mother, having no idea that my African ancestors were transmitting their cosmology to me, whispering across time, hold on, daughter, we will not let you fail. 
Yes, that's Leah Penniman of, of Soulfly Farm in New York. And uh, I've heard her come speak. She spoke at the Moses Conference, uh, Organic Conference down in Wisconsin. And uh, she's an, uh, an amazing uh, practitioner, an amazing speaker. And uh, she gets on on the point of that this involves, uh, you know, I tend to speak in terms of scientific terms and, and practical aspects of it, but uh, this very much involves uh, changing our ethos. Right. And and I just want to offer some simple tips. Um, I mean, one of the things uh, is right right now, I think it is a good idea to have 30,000 calories in one's home, um, you know, in case there is, I mean, hopefully there won't be um, quarantine, you know, hopefully that won't come. But, you know, to have 30,000 calories, but have those 30,000 calories all from farmers we trust that are doing regenerative egg, mm. using, eating the food, not storing it for the – and by the way, you know, mice can get this food if you yeah, do it yeah. wrong and then you're just feeding your mice <laughs> right. problems. And right, right, right. So, uh, But so a couple great companies is whole, mealing, whole, uh, whole, whole grain milling out in Welcome, Minnesota, corn gruel, corn, buying the – Corn meal is a very cheap thing to do. Uh, you can just take a couple teaspoons of corn meal, put it in a mug, add some water, put it in your microwave, add some fresh corn in the seasoning, and it's it's actually kind of a really good um, polenta to do. So I mean, and so but we can be eating from this regenerative egg in yeah. these small places. They can actually taste really good. It's not about a sacrifice. It's about um, entering this living world so we can get back to kindness and sanity in our world. That sounds like a plan. It sounds like a plan. Let's do it tomorrow, right? Okay. Right, right. So, um, but um, and, and you know, one of these, um, I, I'd love it just again to kind of. Well, yeah, I'm, now I'm going to change my mind, which I do. Um, yeah. We want to make sure we get in the regenerative study that's happening oh, right, right now. So let's make sure we get that in. Sure. Uh- I'm with the Agroecology and Rural Economics Research Corps. We're a group of scientists, uh, independent uh, scientists who are involved in helping communities uh, come up with projects to uh, connect uh, agroecology uh, and uh, you know find some of the scientific practices underlying that. And uh, we started to work with the Regeneration Midwest, which is a group of farmers, food activists, and practitioners across the 12 Midwest states. Uh, and uh, we got a grant from the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation to uh, – study six Midwest states uh, and look at uh, the uh, comparing counties that are more on the conventional side of production to counties that are, have a greater regenerative ag presence and see how those counties differ, uh, differ in terms of their climate adaptation and their population health. And so it's a two-pronged study. We're going to be looking at uh, – going to have our – some researchers go and visit these uh, counties and uh, and um, run these semi-structured interviews with uh, farmers to see what their view is in terms of how they produce things and how this might relate to things like the changing uh, climate and, and uh, population health. We're also going to be running some focus groups in these counties. In other words, we're going to be going to these counties that have been uh, very much abandoned uh, uh, at the federal level, at many levels, uh, and uh, – Find out uh, what's been going on, what, what uh, farmers' views are on, on these things. And, uh, but uh, the second part of it is an ecological analysis to look at census data and then USDA data and to see if uh, any of the, those signals can be found at the county level. So um, rural um, rural areas have been really hurt by industrial egg. I yeah. mean, it, it killed a lot of small towns. We've had a lot yes. of people saying that. Um, and regenerative egg can have the opposite effect, right? You can You can have, you know, the... Grain miller and right. the grain miller, and then you can build up a different type of community. Yes. But how do you actually quantify some of that? Is that that's kind of the essence of it? Uh, yes. Well, we're we're going to be looking at to see if these uh, 
these kinds of effects that you're describing can can be found uh, um, at the level in terms of how communities feel about themselves, uh, and also at the level of the uh, the county level in terms of uh, population health and, and climatic adaptation. Uh, um, you know, is, is the water cleaner? Um, is that how's the town? How's the county doing economically? Um, how? What about population health? What about mental health? What about? Uh, uh, I mean, unfortunately, is a terrible uh, wave of farmer suicides going on? What's going on with that? Um, you know, we have various hypotheses about what direction is going to go in. But one of the beautiful things about science is that you don't know how it's going to play out. You know, it might be that in some states, uh, and I'm. We don't have an answer, but I'll give you an example. Maybe in Wisconsin, there's very little difference between the conventional side of things and regenerative side. But in Iowa, there is a big difference. Now you have a state interaction effect that would be it's very strange and interesting. So why that would be, we don't know now. And so we would want to investigate. Perhaps Wisconsin's policies are such that they support the two uh, types of uh, production better than in, in, uh, in Iowa that's product, uh, helping a conventional but not uh, Regenerative, for instance, uh, I'm, that's a scenario that I'm making up to demonstrate that these are the kind right. of questions that we're unpacking. I love this quote from E.O. Wilson. We need the unrelenting application of reason, a basic sense of kindness, and an yeah. understanding of who we are. So yeah. how do and 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 yeah. how do we how do we have that unrelenting act application? I mean, what is going on? How can can regenerative agriculture? Um, you know, sometimes I want to go, yay, regenerate yes, agriculture yes, and yes. save the world and everything's going to be fine. Yes. And that kind of Pollyannish has its place. It has its place. It but. has its place, <laughs> but right. it, it yeah. needs to be grounded. Uh, that's absolutely correct because in the end, uh, if it's all about, uh, you know, uh, being Pollyanna about it, then we, we – and, and then we don't deliver the goods, then it sends a terrible signal uh, and uh, we have hopes betrayed and we're not in the business of doing that. Um, and, you know, the other thing is that despite the fact that we're comparing these two things, uh, in actuality, it's, a, it's very much a continuum. So you have conventional farmers who, um, you know, perhaps they do pesticide, GMOs, all the things that um, uh, many of us might look down on, but they are now uh, understanding that the climate change is uh, happening and increasing in floods, and so they're uh, reshaping uh, their landscape in a way to be able to engage in, in greater flood control, and that's the kind of uh, kind of permaculture thing that you brought up. And also, it's really strange. All of a sudden, things open up when uh, crises emerge. All of a sudden, this gives us an opportunity to be able to do uh, to do new things. And can farmers make more money doing regenerative agriculture and yes. building quality soil? So it's yes. not only it's not only about doing good; it's also about making more money. Yes. And would that speed the transition to regenerative agriculture? So you're listening to Food Freedom Radio on AM 950. I'm Laura Headland with Rob Wallace. We'll return for our last segment after this. Welcome back to Food Freedom Radio, where we plan to nourish the seeds of change. I'm Laura Headline, and in studio with us is Rob Wallace. He's the author of Big Farms, Make Big Flu, plus two technical books. He is a researcher with the Agroecology and Rural Economics Research Corp., and he's also a visiting scholar from the Institute for Global Studies. Um, he's been studying diseases for over 25 years and has now focused his attention on uh, regenerative agriculture. And one of the things you were saying when we went on break is that planet Earth is now planet food. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, for the most part, uh, I mean, we look at the biomasses and millions of tons, uh, livestock. I mean, we're talking about, uh, um, you know, large animals. Uh, livestock are, are over uh, 
something like a, a billion uh, uh, tons uh, just in biomass, and, and wildlife make a, a much less than that, something like 50 million tons. And humans were about uh, comprise about uh, in, in 350. So say that again. Million. You mean so uh, in terms of just raw mass of biomass, and in terms of uh, who's out there, and uh, I mean livestock are by far uh, more in terms of just the millions of tons of animal compared to wildlife and people. So we took a beautiful forest and uh, we turned it into a buckthorn. Yeah, I mean, neck. Uh, right. And so in essence, the you know, and, and the the world's encircled by what we might consider cities of uh, hog and, and poultry and. Um, so we've we've turned uh, the planet in in such a way that uh, you know ostensibly to to produce food, but I think in, in a way that um, is not necessarily the best for us in terms of being able to continue on as a species from generation so to generation. Coronavirus or COVID nineteen uh, yeah. is it karma? I I I won't go there because right, uh, I I don't think we. Anybody deserves this. No, I don't. I didn't but, mean to say that either. Yes. But I know what I meant. What I meant to say is something like, uh, "Are these the natural consequences, consequences yeah. of the actions?" Yeah, I mean, I mean, that's exactly it. I yeah, mean, you know, and this is all, all those pathogens that I named through, you know, coronavirus, and even though African swine fever hasn't spilled into humans, there's one that was typically constrained to Africa that blew out through Europe and into China, killing half their hog. Uh, that's threatening the, the U.S. and. Uh, uh, you know, the, the Ebola that took out a village or two now it spreads out through the entire region, not just West Africa, but currently it's engage, engaging in the longest Ebola outbreak in the Congo right now. And then you have all the influenzas, H5NX, all through Europe, uh, H5N2 who, here, H, H1N1, H7N9, and on and on and on and on. And these are all directly related to how we've uh, increasingly capitalized ag- uh, agriculture uh, to produce profit rather than to produce food that we can live from generation to generation. That's it. I mean, if the focus, if the intention was producing food, right. it'd be one outcome. But if, it's pretend, if the intention is producing profit, it's yes. another outcome. I've heard some in industrial eggs say, actually, the reality uh-huh. is that the big farms, the big industrial farms are safer and better in terms of biosecurity. I, well, I, I completely disagree with that. And But you know, unfortunately, at this moment, they've won that argument in the sense of uh, – uh, as an argument, but not as as a reality. So, for instance, the United Nations, the Food Agriculture Organization, will list uh, the organization of farms from uh, uh, large farms to smallholders, and uh, as in terms of biosecurity. So, by definition, industrial ag means biosecurity, and that's, in my view, completely false. I mean, and if I want to design a, a farm that had the most dangerous combinations of characteristics in terms of the spread and the evolution of deadly pathogens, I would choose the industrial model. Could I microbes mean, be kind of controlling us to do this? <laughs> That's a joke, but yeah, yeah. who knows? Well, I mean, they're, they're, <laughs> well, here's the thing. The, the horrible thing about the, the economic model is that once these terrible um, pathogens emerge out of industrial production and, and spill over into smallholders, smallholders are blamed for it. And uh, the government picks up the check to clean up the mess. And so as a, an industry, as an industrial sector, um, you know, agribusiness doesn't have to uh, fold in the costs of an outbreak onto their balance sheets. And so the pathogen – not only does the agribusiness continue to be able to continue to uh, exist, 
but the pathogens themselves are uh, allowed to continue to circulate because um, the pro- uh, model of production is not stopped. And I always, in, in a really dark moment, I always joke that uh, pathogens have some of the best lawyers on the planet because <laughs> agribusiness <laughs> is basically defending the model of system that permits these pathogens to continue to circulate. So we're down three minutes, and I, I don't want to uh, force hope, <laughs> but but I also, it's not about forcing hope. It's, it's almost about how do we create our own hope. Yeah. Buying from a CSA, community-supported agriculture, going to Seward Co-op, learning how to cook with lentils and grains. Can all this stuff make a difference? Well, I, I'm, uh, I do think people should be doing those things, but I'm also uh, very wary of the notion that we can consume our way into a, a new model. And so at some point, we have to you know, uh, take up the pitchforks. Uh, I'd like to think proverbially, but uh, maybe something else involved in terms of uh, uh, changing the dynamics so that regenerative ag uh, can be supported uh, with the subsidies and regulation necessary to scale up and scale out and such a way that we can uh, protect our environments and so that the dead zone in Mexico isn't also in Iowa where you can't swim in half the rivers um, so that our uh, uh, people in rural communities can uh, uh, live free, live well, uh, and live, stay there generation to generation. And um, so that involves uh, considerable political pushback. Right. It's, it's politics. It's, it's yeah. politics and. It's not one little thing, but it's also gaining yes. political power. Though I think when we buy food and from each other, then we also gain political power. So it's a way of cycling up. Okay. So, Rob, uh, tell people um, how they can read your books and connect with you and learn more about um, the Agricultural and Rural Economic Research Corps. Uh, sure. You can just uh, – if you want to start, you can read – Reach us over uh, the Agroecology and Rural Economics Research Corps. You can just Google us, Google us there and uh, find our website there. Um, I, my book, Big Farms Make Big Flu, is available from Monthly Review uh, Press. You can find that online as well. Um, it's a book of essays uh, that uh, unpack a lot of the things that we are now discussing in terms of COVID-19. Um, and I have a, a couple of technical books, uh, one called Neoliberal Ebola um, about the outbreak in, uh, in West Africa and uh, one called Clear-Cutting Disease Control which is about when you rip down the forest, you make things harder to control diseases, and that's uh, primarily centered on Zika. And uh, those are also available online. So as someone who knows a lot about these issues, how does this time feel for you? Uh, well, um, it, it's, it's a difficult thing uh, in, in two ways because as, as someone who's been talking about these very issues uh, for so long, to see one pathogen emerge – uh, almost annually at this point. It's really hard to see that happen. Um, but on the other hand, I find increasingly that uh, the, the story and uh, analysis that our team has developed over the last 15 years is starting to have uh, in- increasing uh, play across the public. So unfortunately, uh, this is not something that's going to happen as snap. Uh, this is um, involving a generational project uh, that is going to come up against really tough and uh, well-supported uh, forces in agribusiness. Yeah, but if we give that love light Bernie man, it's going to happen. And even those I, I like forces, it. even those forces, yeah. they have kids, they have grandkids. I mean, yes. we can find that unity consciousness yes. to do something better. But we need to be unrelenting application reason, a basic sense of kindness, and yes. an understanding who we are. So, and uh, with us is was today was Rob Wallace, author of Big Farms Make Big Flus. Thank you for listening to Food Freedom Radio. Yeah.